Support comes from Pacific Science Center, celebrating spring at Paxi with butterflies at the Tropical Butterfly House, sea creatures in the saltwater tide pool, and Jane Goodall, reasons for hope at the IMAX Theater, a journey around the globe to share good news stories. Learn more at Paxi.org. Do you hear that in sound? That's right. That's the sound of Western Washington welcoming the rain after a few weeks of horrid smoke that reminded some of us of airport smoking lounges. It canceled school field trips to pumpkin patches, and it made some of us pretend that we're in Mordor. But welcome to Friday, everybody, and welcome to the Week in Review, the show where we try to make sense of the week's news. I'm Zeki Hamid, filling in for Bill Radke today, and thankfully for all of our listeners, I'm not here to crack bad jokes on my own. Uh, I'll have help, hopefully, from some wonderful journalists that are joining me today. Seattle Times health reporter Elise Takahama. How you doing, Elise? Good. Thanks for having me today. You bet. Seattle Metro Met Magazine's deputy editor, Allison Williams. Hey, Allison, welcome back. Hi, I'm great. How are you? Good. And KUW arts and culture reporter, Mike Davis. Finally, I can do a show with you, man. I've been waiting for this for a long time. Welcome, Mike. Thanks, Zeki. It's been a long time coming. Glad to be here. So you can also stream this show on YouTube and Facebook. And uh, for folks, if you miss any part of this show, you can always listen to the podcast. Just go to wherever you get your podcasts or just head over to KUW.org. All right, let's get to our first story here. Over the last few weeks, we have been experiencing smoky conditions and hazy skies in the Puget Sound region. The air quality has fluctuated between moderate and downright hazardous at times. It was nutty how many of my kids' soccer practices were canceled uh, because of smoke uh, around this time of year. So let's start with the cause of the smoke, the fires themselves. Several fires in western Washington, including the Bolt Creek Fire that has been burning for over 40 days. Allison, let's start with you. Why are we seeing so many fires in western Washington? Well, you know, right now, what we see in Seattle, the smoke that affects us, isn't always a direct reflection of necessarily how big a fire year it is. There are fires, they are bad, but sometimes what we see in the smoke here doesn't necessarily reflect if it's been an extreme year. I believe we're at a lower than our peak number of acres burning this year, but it's still, of course, have a couple major fires going on. Um, I know the Bolt Creek fire, I believe, is thought to be human caused. And there's another fire down south, the Nakia Creek fire, that is also thought to be human caused. So one reason we're seeing fires is that um, a lot of them are lit by humans, whether by accident or by arson. Mostly, I think what I've heard anecdotally is mostly accidents using fireworks or campfires. Um, So I think we see the carelessness. We also just we had a very dry fall. I mean, I know we're, we talk about this. Oh yeah. We have the smoke season now. Mm -hmm. Two years ago, it was over Labor Day weekend. We're a month and a half past that now and still dealing with that. So we're adjusting to this as a new normal, but we still haven't, it's not like we can pin down, Oh, this is our new January. This is our new Mm -hmm. smoketober. Um, I think we're all still adjusting and we're seeing the, the fires still burn because forest fires are just not easy to put out. I know Paige Browning did a great article on KUOW that was just talking about why they can't put out the Bolt Creek fire without nature's help. And it's not as simple as taking a big old bucket, a giant bucket from the sky and dumping it on a fire. You're, you're worried about firefighter safety or thinking about things like erosion. And um, 
it really it's this rain that's here that's really the most important factor to to control it yeah and uh, Mike, if you can pick up on that thread and tell us a little bit more about uh, why the fires firefighters haven't been able to extinguish the fire well one thing i read is just you know you're talking about some terrain that is very steep it's wooded so um, when you have a fire, I, in my understanding, I'm not an expert on this, is it doesn't sort of just come through and immediately wipe everything out into a flat plain of ash. You have trees, some that are standing, some that are not. They're unstable. Um, the ground, you know, this kind of thing, it changes the, the ecosystem that you're in. And trees that you might have been fine walking under in a normal forest now with some of them burnt, you don't know when they might fall. And the safety of mm-hmm. firefighters who are doing a very right. you know hazardous job, it's important. They can't get out of a place quickly. Um, and so, you know, it's the Cascades. It's it's mm-hmm. a rough terrain and um, they're, yeah. we're limited. And, you know, they, they're working a lot on protecting homes and um, personal property and lives. Sometimes those steep hillsides can't be a priority. Yeah. Mike, anything to add to to, to why uh, it's it, there seems to be this narrative of like, well, there's a fire and there are firefighters. And, uh, you know, Allison t- t- touched on some of these issues. Anything to add to that? Sure. Um, I think, you know, while I sat in my house coughing because of the smoke, I had a lot of time to read. And um, KUOW, we actually did a couple of stories that spoke to exactly what you're saying. I think that it is the risk to firefighters, but... It's also the fact that, you know, the airplanes that fly over these fires oftentimes can't get water mm-hmm. to the bottom. So, you know, you're, you're kind of getting the top wet, but everything underneath is still burning. That's part of the issue. Also, we don't have a ton of fires here, even though it's felt like it over the last couple of years. We really don't. So we have all of this greenery, all of this fuel, if you will. There's just so much here that can burn because of the lack of fires so that when we see seasons like what we're in right now, it's just burning through so much of the greenery mixed with the fact that, yo, it feels like it hasn't rained in like a month. I I don't know about y'all, but I grew up here. I noticed the lack of rain and it is so weird to me that it hasn't rained. So it's just all of these things come together. It's the perfect storm. So yeah, it's some human error, it's some fireworks, it's some climate change. Mm-hmm. But when all of that comes together, we can't breathe. Right. So let, let's actually pick up on, on the climate change aspect of this, because I can't see this and not think about climate change. So I want to know, at least if you can help us through this a little bit, is this the new normal? We're getting used to fires on, yeah, I mean, we are used to fires on the east side, but, uh, and I mean, the east side, I mean by eastern Washington, but fires on the west side is kind of new. So um, how should we change our thinking about fires in western Washington, and how do we prepare? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I'm also not a, a wildfire expert by any means, but um, but it does sound like these these really dry seasons um, mixed with just the the smokiness and the dense the dense brush happening on the western side of the Cascades is just going to be more common. Um, we had a couple of reporters from our environment team go out to the um, to go out to the Bolt Creek fire on Monday, um, and they were just saying too. I mean, as Mike said, it is so. This year has just been one of the driest summers on record, um, particularly in October, where we're usually starting to see that rain. And so, I think that's probably where we're going to see a lot of the climate change um, effects actually happening. Is just the fact that it's been so dry, and you know, I don't think it'll. I think climate 
climate experts have said it's not going to be every summer by any means, but it's just going to be more and more common. Um, and it's just something that we're probably going to have to get to used to is just having longer periods of smoke coming from these prolonged wildfire seasons in metro areas like Seattle. Yeah. And one thing I, I wanted to note is I remember being on this show in the spring and us talking about how much snow there was in the mountains. Mm. We had a um, La Nina year uh, winter last winter. We're expected to have another one this winter. And it's exciting to see that much snow in the mountains. And we saw that precipitation in the spring and talked about it without maybe this means no wildfire season. And I think it's really important to remember the cause and effect is not that one-to-one. We can't look at a great one great winter and think that that has solved a problem that is, you know, with climate change, we often talk about it's, it's uh, long periods of time and patterns that are slightly shifting and, it's really tempting as humans to be like, great, we got rain done, moving on now, now back to normal. And so I think it's just important to remember that that's, as we come to understand our new normal, it's not going to have that one-to-one mm-hmm. understanding. And to that, Alison, the ironic thing is we didn't get a lot of fire or smoke from fires in, like, say, eastern Washington or from Vancouver or something like that. It's actually, if you take away the fires in western Washington, it would have been a, almost a smoke-free year. But then this thing came along and all of a sudden we're having it from fires in Western Washington, which we're absolutely not used to. So that's a little bizarre there. Um, I want to ask, we're talking about preparing uh, for future uh, for future seasons of this. And I don't know about systemically, I don't know if you have thoughts about that, about, you know, what needs to be done on that scale. But to make it a little bit more manageable, what what should people do, individual households, for example? I mean, is it, uh, you know, what should they invest in? Air purifiers, better windows, better masks? I mean, I think one of the first things is, and I'm sure Lisa can speak to this better, understanding the risk. I know I sort of waved it off thinking I'm relatively young, uh, healthy. I can go out, you know, we were talking about walk our dogs mm-hmm. and as long as I'm not jogging outside, I'll probably be fine. And I really felt it affect me. And I think that maybe we're not understanding exactly what the risk is here. And that might be step one. Yeah. Elise, any thoughts? Yeah, I think, yeah, I was just going to say, I totally agree with that. I think too, I mean, it's unfortunate that we've had to become so comfortable with face masks during COVID, but that is definitely going to be a huge part of that too. I think that, you know, county health, uh, folks have definitely said that the N95s work against wide wildfire smoke. Um, and then we also just really need to be getting up our air ventilation standards. It's there. They haven't been, they're really not, they're not up to date and, you know, especially in schools and public buildings um, and things like that. And, you know, of course in homes too, that is such a priority and these systems can be really expensive and really inaccessible for people. So it's not like everyone can just go out and buy an HVAC system right. for their home. It's, it's not, mm-hmm. it's not that realistic. So there definitely has to be some sort of larger, larger plan in place to get the standards up and get people to comply with them because you know between having more respiratory viruses hopefully we won't but you know uh, health experts have said that that is probably going to happen um in the future and between that and between worsening air quality and smoke during summer and fall seasons um you know that's going to be something that we're going to have to think about mm-hmm. in fire safety too though i think someone else just mentioned this but i mean we're looking at two major fires right now that both appear to have been started by people. I think that we're so used to having the rain and, you know, people could just go out and play with fireworks here. It wouldn't be as risky as say in California, but 
um, when you're looking at climate change, you're looking how dry it's been. Those things just aren't true. So people actually have to be more careful because mm-hmm. these fires right now are like right in our backyard. I was literally on Weekend Review last time when I realized how close we actually are to the Boat Creek fire. It's like, oh, it's right there. So we all also just have to be a little more careful and a little more aware of our surroundings. That's a good point, and uh, it, because the fire in Naked Creek and and uh, Allison, you just mentioned this as well that they think it's human cause. It might have been fireworks. Um, so as fires are becoming more common, more destructive, a uh, couple of questions: How do we enforce bans, and what is the correct punishment for people who start something like this? Well, I mean, if we look at the Eagle Creek fire that happened on the Columbia River Gorge, and I'm going to say 2017. That was human caused, started by a teenager, um, I believe, doing using fireworks, and, and it was it was pretty notable that he was brought to court and had a very large multi million dollar judgment put against him. It is sort of structured with some, I think, you know, community service, and I mean, I don't think anyone thinks he's going to come up with fifty thousand dollars, whatever it was, right. to pay back. But I think that was a, at least a very visible shift in talking about responsibility for um, not just a fine, a hundred dollar fine for setting off fireworks during a fire ban, but possibly being responsible for the damage it does. I, I don't know. I think coming back, I think just maybe what needs to start is a mental shift around. I think Mike, you mentioned in California, it's just not expected that you're allowed to go out and shoot fireworks a lot. Mm-hmm. I think our relationship to campfires in the wilderness um I've loved them. I grew up here. I I've sent, sat around a campfire and felt so happy, but it's time to maybe divorce our idea of that being a staple, hmm. especially in the summers here in the outdoors. And, you know, we can, we can prosecute people, but I think of, at first we just need a, a more social shift on what is acceptable behavior. Right. It's the culture. People here will like literally have bonfires in their backyards. So like (laughs) all of those things that we are used to here, some of that stuff probably just culturally has to change. Yeah. And maybe some better education about how how to do these things safe, uh, safely. Um, But anyway, at least any final thoughts on this? No, I, th- I think, yeah, I agree with everything that uh, that Allison and Mike said. I think it's it's tough to talk about punishment with this. I, I definitely think a lot of people have very low tolerances for mm-hmm. people who are going to go out and shoot fireworks off into dry fields. But, um, you know, at the same time, it's, yeah, it's it's definitely just changing our, our perception of how often we should be doing these fires, especially ones when I know a lot, I mean, you know, and a lot of friends in college would, have no understanding of mm-hmm. fires or how to start them safely. And yet, you know, lots of, lots of students do that. Um, it's something that's super common, especially out in golden gardens or Alki or something like that. And of course that's right. not where these big wildfires are happening, but um, you know, like Mike said, just changing the culture yeah. of, of thought around that. Well, we're going to leave the fires uh, here or hopefully far away now that the rain is here and we'll be right back after the short break. Support comes from the Discovery Inn on Washington's San Juan Island, an island getaway that's a ferry ride away, now taking reservations for summer and fall. More information and booking available at discoveryinn.com. Support comes from Kenmore Air, offering getaways to charming Victoria, B.C. with daily flights. Just a quick 45-minute flight from Seattle to Victoria's Inner Harbor, from only $169 per person one way. Bookings available now at KenmoreAir.com. And can I ask if there is Mike or Michael? I'm seeing that your name is Michael on Zoom. Mike. 
This is Week in Review. I'm Zeki Hamid filling in for Bill Radke today, and I'm joined by Seattle Times health reporter Elise Takahama, Seattle Met Magazine's deputy editor Allison Williams, and KUW arts and culture reporter Mike Davis. All right. The cold weather's back, and experts are telling us that just like they have in the previous two winters, to prepare for a potential of a COVID surge uh, this coming fall and winter. So, Elise, I want to start with you. Is there anything different about this potential surge that we haven't seen before? And uh, basically, what makes this potential surge different than the other surges we've had? Yeah, I think that um, in terms of the actual surge, I mean, I would not try to, I would not try to predict what it's going to look like. I think that anyone who has tried to predict COVID at this point, I mean, just turns out to be wrong, frankly. And so I think that, you know, folks, health experts are definitely predicting that we are going to see another surge. It's just, you know, the way that some of these respiratory viruses work sometimes and, you know, with cold weather coming in people going indoors, there's, you know, we're in the middle, we're beginning flu season, um, and RSV season, and all these other respiratory viruses, especially as kids are going back to school are going to be more common. Um, but the the thing that's different this year in particular, I think, is just that we have really, really let go of a lot of COVID precautions as a state. And even in, I, I live in Seattle, and, you know, I think mass mandate has been gone for months now, both city and statewide. Um, and people are really not, at least in the grocery stores that I've been going to, have really not been masking up nearly as much. And so, you know, and, you know, Inslee called the end to the state of emergency for COVID. So there are these just general um, precautions that have been lifted that I think give people just a different sense of thinking about the pandemic. Um, so hopefully people remember that, you know, there's still this virus going around and that we're just going to have to reimagine our expectations depending on where we're at. Um, but certainly that it's not, it's not done and over for now. Yeah. And pe- people that definitely seem to have, uh, moved on, so to speak, and treating it just like say the flu or other viruses, stuff like that, uh, whether that's the correct thinking or not, but I know there's a, a lot of COVID fatigue that's sort of settling in right now. Um, I, I want to ask totally. a question about uh, these boosters, because th- there's this booster, uh, and correct me if I'm pronouncing it differently, it is bivalent, bivalent booster, mm-hmm. right? That's correct. <laughs> and and that's for, uh, that protects against Omicron uh, variants. Um, that's the the latest one. Um, uh, but uh, these booster rates have been really low. And uh, so, Mike, I'm wondering, wh- why do you think there are uh, so few people are getting this shot? Well, I mean, I could definitely guess, but I think that most of the reporting I read came from Elise. But I think, <laughs> <laughs> but it, I think it's everything that, that you've already kind of mentioned. I think it's just the general COVID fatigue of people that you see walking around. Seattle is ground zero. I feel like we masked up first. The mask coming off here would definitely say a lot about what you're going to see throughout our, our country. But I think that also on an institutional level, it feels like we're backing off of a lot of COVID restrictions. We're getting to a place where some of these emergency orders are starting to disappear. We're getting to a place where people's jobs are, are starting to hire people without vaccine requirements. So just as a society, as we're taking all of these steps to, to go back to business as usual, to get people to come back to their offices and to do all of these things, it's going to be hard to then turn around and expect people to run and go get the latest shot for the variant. So I, I think that it's the culmination of all of those things. But I would have to I'd have to go back to Elise to, to bring in some expertise here. Yeah. What, what are the rates right now, Elise? 
The, the... Um, let's see. I think as of yesterday, it was about 13% statewide for the updated booster, which mm-hmm. is much, much lower than we were seeing for, of course, the, the primary series or even the, the first booster last year. Um, King County numbers are, I think, around 15%, but um, but their dashboard has been kind of um, in the works in the past few weeks. So anyway, but I think that, you know, regardless, rates are much lower than than health folks want to see right now. And yeah, it's definitely, definitely, I think part of that is COVID fatigue. And it's really understandable. I mean, for people who just don't want to hear about it anymore, I get that. I'm tired of writing about it too. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I think it's also that people were maybe just tuning out of COVID news and so missed the fact that there was this new booster. Mm, um, even my own friends and family, I think, were surprised to hear about the booster um, even like a month after it was authorized by the F- FDA. And so um, mm-hmm. that's part of it. And then I think, you know, especially in certain areas of the state for whatever reason there were um, people were having a lot of trouble finding booster appointments as well so i don't know if that's huh. the case with any of you but that's you definitely what we were hearing in, in seattle i've been shocked at how hard it is to get an appointment for it and i um my you know regular doctors at one of the very large clinics here and i googled the name of the clinic and bivalent booster and their vaccine booster webpage hasn't been updated since April. And I had to call oh, several people asking. And I'm like, this is, I feel like I'm digging out this obscure <laughs> request just to ask, you know, do you have the new booster and can I get it? Yeah. And so I do think there's some communication totally. you know, and, and, you know, availability issues. I just wanted to speak to something that Mike said sort of about like seeing emergency orders expire and mask mandates. One thing I worry about is when those institutional things come down, People take it less seriously in in their own life. And I mean, you know, the expectation that if you test positive, you're going to quarantine and not go out at all. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if that expectation that um, is still there, if they don't see it being taken as seriously on that higher level, I worry that people are going to treat it like a cold. I mean, we never want people to go out with a cold either right. and <laughs> touch public surfaces and, and whatever, but we know that people do. And I'm worried that that's one shift we'll see is that people will be out and about more knowingly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, have you seen yeah. some of that, Mike? Because what I'm seeing is actually people staying home. It's like, oh, it's just a cold. I'm still going to work from home, something like that. Are you seeing anything different? Um, well, I, I, I'm working right now with COVID. So I guess <laughs> I would say that people are still working, but I am at home. I think that one thing we're also seeing right now too, though, especially as we're heading into the winter, People are starting to ride public transportation again. People are starting Mm -hmm. to actually be in these spaces where they're going to be in close proximity with other people again. Um, We're hearing like out of the city of Seattle, for example, people are coming back to the office officially a couple of days a week. So I I just think that, again, it's just going to be the perfect storm of people coming back together. COVID is still here. Like business has to happen. This is America. We know what it means to live in this capitalist society where money has to be made. But that doesn't mean that COVID isn't here. And that doesn't mean that people aren't still going to be able to give it to each other. So it's going to be interesting heading into this winter after all of these years where people were still more apart, people were still distancing. Um, I'm not hearing anything about like people not going to family gatherings and the holidays this year, for example, like all of those warnings that we had in years past don't seem to be here right now. And when you mix that with people not, taking the booster for whatever reason, uh, it could get interesting this year. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I've been surprised at how little public messaging there's been about, please don't travel if you don't have to. And I don't even know if that's 
going to be part of the guidance this holiday season. I mean, last year, that was all we were hearing from the Department of Health mm-hmm. and, and other public health folks. So that's definitely surprised me already is that even with Thanksgiving coming up, we haven't really heard that as much. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I, I understand that, you know, we all need to get back to life um, and, and just live because from everything that I've been hearing and and, and all the research here, this is not going to go away in, mm-hmm. in our lifetime. Um, so at this point, it's all about how do you manage it and how do you keep on living? And um, that's why we're, we're seeing what we're seeing. And I want to, uh, for listeners, if you do want to get a booster, uh, uh, the best uh, thing to do is to go uh, to this website, vaccinelocator.doh.wa.gov. Or you can just Google Vaccine Locator Washington. Uh, go on the website, put in your address, f- see where it's at, and hopefully you'll be able to find something. And if not, uh, go to outside of Seattle and there might be some more availability. But um, yeah, so let's leave this here and we're going to talk about something else to do with healthcare. Um, big news out of UW Medicine. And over 2,000 UW Medicine nurses approved a new labor agreement with hospital administration that will give them some pretty hefty raises. And that comes after other big hospital contract negotiations, including at Providence Swedish and Seattle's Children. Elise, you've been all over this. Um, so uh, to tell us a little bit more about this big new contract for, uh, for nurses at UW Medicine. Sure. I, I think you summed it up really well. That's that's really what we've been watching for the past month or so is there's just been kind of this uh, one after another uh, series of contract negotiations going on with some of these major hospital systems. Um, and it's, you know, these healthcare workers are really excited. They've been pushing for raises, I mean, the entire pandemic, really. Um, and so now that hospitals are finally renewing contracts and coming back to the bargaining table, um, we're starting to see some some effects of that, I think. And so it's definitely interesting just because at the same time, what's also going on in the background is hospitals are just losing a lot of money this year. And it's a lot of reasons. Part of that is because some of the federal COVID funding dollars have run out this year. Um, a lot of that is also just due to patients who have delayed their care and now are sicker or in worse shape and require more hospital attention. Um, and then there's also a lot of patients who are not necessarily able to get discharged. So, mm. you know, hospital systems are calling them long length of stay patients um, or difficult to discharge patients. And those are the types of patients who could be discharged. They're medically stable, but still need some sort of health care um, supervision or support. So ideally they would be discharged to some sort of long-term care facility or a nursing home or something like that. Um, but right now what's happening is that there are those types of facilities are also seeing a lot of staff shortages. So mm-hmm. it's really just backed up. It's kind of a mess right now. Um, but you know, it's, it's, it's definitely interesting and, and exciting to watch some of these negotiation processes going on too. It's, it's just one part of this though. Right. And, and uh, I'm wondering, Allison, if you can weigh in on this as well. Um, so hospital system have agreed to these big contracts, even though they've had financial struggles. And do you think it's just become impossible to ignore healthcare worker bur- burnout? Well, I mean, I think as you know, Elise has obviously been following this much closer, but I think we all know that healthcare workers are coming off of several really tough years. And it's not the kind of thing that just can like reset, it's cumulative. And I think that um, it's not unsurprising that some of the staffing has been a problem because of what healthcare workers have had to go through and just our need. And these are very skilled 
practitioners of different kinds, I, I, I think it's important that we notice that like we think of, you know, our tech workers as being these highly skilled, sought after workers. These are workers who do incredibly important jobs that we need. We need them specifically. And so a higher pay chasing that is, to me, makes just as much sense as tech companies, you know, going after workers that they find valuable. Um, you know, burnout is it's not easily solved. You can't somebody on a on a two week vacation and have it be done. I think it like this, it needs to come with support across the board. I'm glad to see that, you know, these organizations, these nurses groups are in favor of this. This is what they wanted um, because they would probably know better than anyone else what they need to face that burnout. Yeah. Mike, anything to add to this? Just that it, it feels timely. I think that, you know, like the last topic, we just talked about COVID. We just talked about coming into this winter and what we may see. It's critical to make sure that those nurses are taken care of as we're heading right back into this season where, you know, we might see an uptick in hospitalizations out here. So we we need those workers to not only be there, but to be taken care of, to be there in their full capacity. So just not even as a journalist, just as a human, like they need to be taken care of. Their work is critical. It's crucial to our society. Yeah. And uh, Elisa, uh, what it's uh, what I mean, we talked about the big raises. Uh, what's the percentage? Yeah, for UW. And again, this is for just a portion of UW mm-hmm. med nurses. We've also got all the folks over at Harborview who are represented by a different uh, labor union. But mm-hmm. for these folks in particular, and these ones that the 2000 we're talking about are at the Montlake and Northwest campuses. Um, and so they are seeing about a 21 percent increase. And then for the new nurses, um, I think about five years and under, I've seen 23% mm-hmm. increase over the next two years, which is really, really, I mean, it's one of the largest that the hospital system has ever given out. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's that's uh, that's incredible. And and how yeah. does, did uh, travel nurses, I mean, we, we heard a lot about travel nurses. Did that factor into any of these decisions? I mean, I, yeah, I don't really know exactly all the, all the um, minutia about the individual negotiations, but it definitely is a broad problem um, that I think hospitals are trying to figure out is, you know, they, they desperately need these travel nurses to fill in staffing shifts. And, you know, these are experts as well. They travel all around the country um, and they usually are much higher paid than permanent staff nurses. Um, And so they come into hospitals for, you know, I think it's about three months minimum, um, but they can extend their contracts and then they help out for a bit and then they go to the next spot that needs help. Um, and so while that's, you know, it's it's a good system in some ways just to kind of get get holes filled, um, it can be it can be frustrating for staff nurses. And, you know, I've talked to a, a lot of nurses who are just really demoralized the fact that they're doing the same mm-hmm. job as the travelers, um, but are just getting paid so much less. So that's, I think that is a good, a good point to, um, to point out. Yeah. Great. All right. Well, we're going to leave this one here and uh, we're going to take a quick break here. When we come back, we're going to talk about um, uh, media blackouts and uh, a really, really nutty story about a rumor that spread like crazy. So um, we'll be right back after this break. This is the Week in Review. I'm Zeki Hamid filling in for Bill Radke, and I'm joined by Seattle Times health reporter Elise Takahama, Seattle Met Magazine's deputy editor Allison Williams, and KUW arts and culture reporter Mike Davis. All right. 
Journalists, this one is for you. I'm sure you have a lot to say about this. So Dan Strauss, (laughs) the Seattle City Council member for Ballard and Greenwood, was one of four panelists at a forum on public safety at the Taproot Theater in Greenwood this past Monday night. Apparently, he did not want media to be present and did not want anybody to be recording this. Um, So he later apologized for it. But, Mike, let me start with you. What was Dan's reasoning for this media blackout, and why is media blackout such a big deal? Well, he his statement says that his reasoning was so that people could talk candidly with each other. Um, I, I can't I can't dispute whether or not that was his reasoning. That is his to have the ridiculousness of that statement, though I, I can dispute. You cannot be an elected official in a public space on a panel about public safety and have a media blackout like everything about that is public like everybody that's in the public all your constituents deserve to hear that just because somebody wasn't one of the 200 some odd people in the room doesn't mean that they don't get to have that information that's the role of the media that's why you have the media there so that everyone else can hear and the idea that in 2022 you think you're going to have 200 people in a room and nobody's going to pull out their phone to record (laughs) is also pretty ridiculous in itself it's not like he zip tie people's phones in plastic bags like a Dave Chappelle (laughs) comedy show like people just walked in and sat down so like it's just I don't know Uh, so much of it is laughable but also it just kind of shows where we are as a society and how folks look at the role of journalists and it's a sad day when you have public officials who actually think that it's okay to do something like this and if an apology is all that he needs to get past this, then I also think that that's a, a sad day for us as journalists because it's our job to be in those types of places. It's our job to inform the community. And when you're in Ballard in a business and you're talking not only just public safety, but you're talking about a potential tiny house village to help the unhoused folks. And we know how hot of a topic that park in Ballard has been with the unhoused community. How dare you as a city council member try to hold that behind closed doors like that's just i mean i know look everybody else i'm sure has a lot to say but it's just this one bothered me a lot yeah i can yeah i can tell and for good reason mike and absolutely so um yeah at least allison jump in well i would say i mean I, I absolutely agree with everything you just said um i think these days every, there's a lot of people familiar with concepts and practices of public messaging and public relations and their media brand and their look. And people sometimes confuse that with the idea that they get to control everything about how they appear in public and how they're written about. And while it might be very important for you, you know, for people to have professionals that help them craft their public image or whatever, that doesn't actually mean you get to 100% control what is said or what is known about you, you know, that you can go out and speak about a subject and it not be put on the record. And I just think that that, is an understanding that we've lost a little bit that when you are especially an elected official out doing things, it is not up to you to see how they are interpreted and how they're presented necessarily. Um, And I think that it's really, I'm glad that we're in a place that we have, everyone has a phone, but that shouldn't be the case. Um, If nobody there happened to have a phone, if it was in front of a group of people that don't have phones or the ability to share that information, there should still be the ability for media to report on it and share it. Mm-hmm. Elise, totally. I want, and, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to 
kind of piggyback off of that and just say too, I mean, this is a meeting of 200 plus people. And so what is the assumption that people's, what people say is going to be private? Like there, that is so many people. And that is, you know, I think when you're speaking at some sort of event like that, it's, it's not going to be outrageous that somebody is taking notes even or recording with their phone. I mean, I think that a lot of people probably would have wanted to share this with other community members. And, you know, as Mike was saying, it's, it's not even just about, you know, having, having the press be there and be the record, the, you know, the public record keeper, but also just for community members who might not be able to go to this meeting. And, mm-hmm. you know, maybe they're worried about COVID. Maybe they have to do childcare during that time and that they should be able to hear what's being said by this council member who represents them. Um, so yeah, definitely just overall so ridiculous, such a mess. So, you know, what was interesting to me about this is that when it comes to certain issues like public safety, and this one specifically talked about tiny house villages, um, people are simply afraid to say what they really think. And, and that's one reason. It's like, no, we don't want this recorded. I don't want this to come out. So I'm, I'm, I'm just wondering, what does that say about our region? Is, is this, um, you know, specific to where we live is that something out in the in the you know the, the wider state or country like why aren't we able to have a conversation with each other and why are we hiding what we truly think about these issues because seattle was passive aggressive Jackie. you know that <laughs> everybody knows that that was the most passive aggressive city on the face of this earth and i think it, it also comes down to the fact that you know Seattle has this thing where we want to look a certain way without being a certain way. So like, mm-hmm. you know, you got all these people in these communities with all of these homes that barely anyone can afford and they want to be able to come out in public and they want to say the right thing and look the right way, but they don't want to actually do the work. So it, it would have been really nice to be a fly on the wall to hear what those Ballard homeowners had to say about the tiny home village that's coming to their community. They probably didn't want that information to be out there and their mm-hmm. council member knows that. I think what really strikes me about this situation is some of the other things that we've literally seen in our city, like lawsuits for lost text messages on the part of politicians, or like our mayor at that meeting with the police officers guild, where he just was oblivious to the fact that there was a journalist in the room that might have a hot mic on him, right? It's like, (laughs) you know, what's going on in our city. So, so it's just clear what he wanted to do, but it's so wrong that he tried to do it. Mm. Yeah, go ahead, Elisiev. I didn't know if he had wanted to yeah no i yeah i agree Mm. i think that that's something that is is something that we do struggle with um and you know i i i wouldn't be surprised you know as mike said seattleites are you know we generally like to um you know be nice up front and then you know maybe that's not necessarily what folks are actually thinking um and so this is a good example but even still i mean i think that regardless what people want to say or don't want to say at these public meetings mm-hmm. you know it's 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 our responsibility to be able to put that out in the public because everyone deserves to know about stuff like this especially with public safety issues yeah and if you have the power of being able to speak out against something in this neighborhood you have the accountability of that and i think that's what's being taken out of this is people if people do want to express opposition or opinions about something but they don't want to be accountable for those 
opinions, then that's a problem. Yeah. Or don't invite the elected official, I guess. Like if you have your, if you own a restaurant and you want to have a, com- mm-hmm. a community talk at your restaurant without having to be accountable for what you say, that's cool. But you can't invite the local city council member because that's not your personal council member that the all the constituents even those unhoused people that probably weren't in the room i wasn't there so i can't say but if i had to guess those people get to hear from council member just as much as you so have that at your house mm-hmm. or you know don't invite the elected official but once you invite our elected official, then we all have a right to be there, especially the media. That's a, that's a really good point. And, and Dan Strauss did apologize for it. Do you think that's sufficient? Or do you think he's got some work to do? I mean, does the apology... So does that apology mean to me that he doesn't know that what he did was wrong? Or does it just mean that it didn't work out and he got caught? Like, mm-hmm. I, I don't... I'm not buying the apology. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens at the next meeting. (laughs) (laughs) Right, exactly. All right, let's leave this one there. And let's get to one more story here before we get to something to smile about. Uh, This has really been the nuttiest story that I've seen all week. And um, so there was a rumor about a serial killer in Seattle this week. And it goes something like this. Several women in their 30s after going out on the town have been abducted, murdered and posed in identical positions south of Soto. Now, again, this is totally false. None of this is true. So uh, but that was the rumor and it spread like wildfire. Um, Allison, how does misinformation like this spread? And uh, and and how does that take away from actual real crimes that are happening? Well, so this is a this is a text message that went around um, this last week, and I I did not get it, but several people on my staff did, and a reporter on our staff named Ben Cassidy looked into this, and I do believe that it referenced a, a, a an actual murder that did happen. Um, again, I didn't get this text, but there was a young woman who I believe was found dead um, that it, it referenced, but then sort of talked about serial killers, talked about there being multiple linked cases that we have not seen any proof of. And Ben talked to somebody at University of Washington has a sort of center for an informed public um, group that looks at how this kind of messaging spreads through populations and how misinformation can spread. I think one thing that was really notable, a lot of people who spend a lot of time on the Internet maybe noticed is the the style of this text message is something called copy pasta. If you've heard of this, it's. it's some text that doesn't make total sense. And it comes from maybe being cut and pasted, cut and pasted, cut and pasted, kind of like the old maybe chain letters that used to get sent through so many people that it, or, a, or an urban legend that by the end, it didn't quite make sense. Mm-hmm. And the language, the sentence structure reminded a lot of people of that sort of cut and paste, cut and paste, not from a direct source. Um, so I know that when Ben talked to someone at the Center for the Informed Public, she talked about looking up sources, looking up, um, you know, talking to law enforcement, um, looking for proof behind this and trying to trace it back to a legitimate source. I think one problem is we do have a lot of people who don't trust police sources mm-hmm. and do worry about having things not told to us by official sources. I think we're also very primed to think that there's some an elaborate serial killer out there having, you know, very creative linked um, stalking behaviors, as opposed to sometimes what the real threats are to people, things like gun violence, things like um, violence from people known to the victims. So it's just created a perfect storm of a story that sounded kind of like a, uh, I don't know, a TV show plot. 
And uh, we all do worry about our safety. And so we pass it along. I don't think that worry for personal safety is necessarily wrong, but it's often directing those energies into a place that isn't as Mm -hmm. productive. Yeah. And Elise, uh, how does lack of trust in media, police and other institutions factor into this? Yeah, I think it definitely factors in. And that's the tough part that we just have to acknowledge is that, you know, I mean, as, as Ben Ben's story reported, it, it really was this widespread of fear through misinformation. And then, you know, the point about local about distrust of local law enforcement and local media um, is, is definitely huge. I think, you know, it's hard to ignore the fact that distrust of the media has gotten more intense, especially with social media in the past, you know, five mm-hmm. to 10 years, really. Um, and so, you know, how do we fight that? I think a lot of that is really just more organized media literacy, you know, in schools, definitely. And then, you know, even community workshops, things like that. Um, I think a lot of folks, especially those who aren't in in journalism or in the news industry are, you know, not necessarily going to be as skeptical of things that they see pop up from their friends or friends of friends. Um, and that's understandable. And so just learning how to like figure out what exactly is the truth of it is a really important skill. I think it's only going to be a more important skill as, as time goes on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's really scary because I think something can spread so quickly. I mean, you know, I, I sound like an old fogey when I'm talking about, well, because of social media, this is what's happened. But, but it does, it spreads it's really true. quickly. And, and, you know, if uh, I have this, and, it's yeah. where we get a lot of legitimate news um, through our social media. I try to be careful about yeah. who I follow. It's a lot of journalists who I trust them as sources. But I do actually these days hear about a lot of the news through my social media mm-hmm. platforms. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mike, how would you handle something like this, right? Like, you know, you see something like this. It comes across your desk. What, what, what do you do? How do you handle it? How do you report on it? Do you not report on it? Don't report on it. Definitely. I mean, but I, I think that so... Elise and Allison both hit the nail on the head. I think that all of your points, both of you were both great points, but I think something that Allison said stuck out to me and hearing, hearing Allison talk about going through that process and hearing that information and the misinformation, you said that like a journalist, unfortunately, a lot of people out there are not journalists. So they're not going to know the fact checks or, you know, like it came to me, but I didn't retweet it. I didn't, passing along because I don't know. It just didn't look credible to me, but I think it looked credible to a lot of people. And um, like Elise said, just where we are with journalism and the fact that we have social media and sometimes it feels like anybody with a platform gets the label Mm -hmm. of journalists, right? Like we just saw a wild Kanye West rant on drink champs Nobody on Drink Champs is a journalist. But when we're looking at that and we're challenging, you know, those hosts to ask the tough questions, it's like, nah, that host isn't a journalist. He's a rapper. But it's hard because in our society right now, you have so many people passing on information who don't have to operate with any level of journalistic integrity. So when you have a story like this and it comes from Dub TV, who also are not journalists, it's like, what is their responsibility and who are they responsible to? Where are those checks and balances? So, I mean, it, it's really hard right now with the level of mistrust of the journalists, with the level of mistrust of police in certain cases. Mm-hmm. 
it's really it's really tough and unfortunately i don't know what the answer is to stop a story like this from spreading in the future because i think it happens so easily and i could easily see it happening again yeah well luckily we do have something called like you mentioned this allison the center for informed public uh at at uw here that really digs into misinformation and disinformation and how to battle it and i think that's an incredible resource that we have right here in you know what else is hard though zaki uh mm-hmm. these serial killer stories are so popular right now right like people are, are are watching jeffrey dahmer for entertainment <laughs> that's right and Part of it, I, I hate to say, but it was kind of like, is is Seattle in the middle of one of these stories? Are we? And it's so weird that that would be cool. But just from a pop culture standpoint, mm-hmm. serial killers are kind of in right now. So it, it's, it's just a weird thing. And I think we all have to remember, like, I know that as journalists, we think a lot about our sources. But sometimes the more you hear something, you have that moment of, of well, maybe there's a kernel of truth to this. Maybe this is came out of something that was true. And we're all susceptible to misinformation. I think that's an important thing to remember. It's one thing to talk about your like elderly grandma who's, you know, sent on a silly chain letter that you could tell was false. But I think it's important for us all to remember that we are all susceptible to some form of it, even if it's not quite as obvious as this was for many people. That's a really good point. Well, uh, we want to leave everybody here with something to smile about, something to look forward to. Um, so who's got something they want to share? What What are you looking forward to? What's making you smile this week? Who wants to go first? I know I have something, but I'll, keep, I'll, I'll, I'll go last. Well, we can't all pick the rain, but I guess, you know, if I go first, <laughs> I can pick the rain. But I'll say specifically, I'm a skier. I love being in the mountains in the snow and... Uh, it's been real sparse up there and we're starting to see some on the weather radar, just the colors I like, the white and the pinks up in the mountains, which means snow's coming. So awesome. that makes me happy. Mike, what's making you smile? Look, I, I can't lie. The, the rain is a part of it. You know, I walked outside this morning. I took a deep breath and I was able to exhale without just coughing my lungs up. It, it was such a beautiful thing. The rain is beautiful. But also, man, uh, my guy, my guy, Geno Smith, is out playing Russell Wilson right now, yes. man. That's uh, that's what's making me smile yes. week after week. I love it. Elise was making you smile. Um, Definitely rain. That's a great one. I stepped outside today and was so happy. Um, Let's see. I... Um, a basketball person too. So I've been very excited about the start of the NBA season. Um, and even though sadly we have yet to see a Sonics team, hopefully that'll be in the future too, but, um, been following the Blazers too. So they're going to play this weekend. They they keep telling us it's coming, but uh, I'm I'm still waiting. Uh, They keep saying that, but where's the confirmation? So I'll tell you what's making me smile. It's a different kind of rain uh, because Seattle has talked a lot about the Mariners, but the OL rain, our women's soccer team, are in the semifinals. They have a big game on Sunday against Kansas City. Um, If they win, they go to the championship game, and I'm going to be there along with 20,000 of my best friends. So LA, LA, OL (laughs) rain. That's what's making me smile. All right, everybody. Uh, I think that's it uh, for our show. Thank you all for listening to the Week in Review. Our panelists today are Seattle Times health reporter Elise Takahama, Seattle Met Magazine's deputy editor Allison Williams, KUOW arts and culture reporter Mike Davis. Week in Review is produced by Kevin Kniestead. Social media and live streaming by Juan Pablo Chiquisa and Tio Popescu. I'm Zeki Hamid. Please be kind to each other and have an excellent day.